Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. So welcome to the first episode of season two of Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to be going through five steps to planning anti-displacement strategies for more equitable transportation systems. I know that's a mouthful. Joining us today is our special guest host, Candace Foster, also with Modern Mobility Partners. And Candace did a, a lot of research on this topic, so who best to walk us through the steps than her? So welcome, Candace. Hello. Um, we are really excited about starting season two. Uh, Kirsten, we were just talking the other day about how crazy of an idea <laughs> we thought it was when we started season one of the podcast, but it was kind of a big hit, at least for us. We thought it was. Um, I, I should go back and check to see how many listeners we have now, but I think we broke a hundred. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was uh, definitely more successful than I originally anticipated. And I don't know if you want to share the news now or if you want to wait until the end of the episode about um, where else this is, has been posted and who might be able to get some, I don't know, credits. Yes. Um, thank you for that segue, Kirsten. Uh, you're such a professional at this. Um, <laughs> so good news for those of you that are certified with the American Institute of Certified Planners, um, which is AICP. That's a national certification for those of us in the transportation planning industry or the planning industry in general. Uh, we are now uh, an AICP continuing education credits provider. And so you can actually get professional development credits for our podcast. And, you know, assuming our podcast episodes are about an hour long or just shy of it, you'll get a full credit. Uh, the first three episodes from season one are already on the planning uh, website. So that's planning.org is where you can find um the American Institute of Certified Planning's uh, log where you can log credits. And so episodes one, two, and three in season one were related to connected and autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, and rising e-commerce. And so if you've listened to the podcast, uh, you can go ahead and get continuing education credits. So that's great news. The other thing is that we actually got picked up last season as uh, one of the top 20 transportation planning podcasts in the country. I didn't even know there were 20 transportation planning podcasts, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there are, but we made the top 20. <laughs> <laughs> but we made the top 20. So we were ecstatic <laughs> about that. We're so honored. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this season, we actually have 12 episodes that we have already planned out. We are batch recording them uh, right now over the next few weeks. And so they will definitely all be coming out. 
Uh, we're still figuring out how we're going to roll them out, whether it's, you know, once a week, every two weeks or once a month. I think we're probably rolling out a few each month just because we got so many of them. And the material is so timely. So we do want to get a lot of it out now with there's just so much going on. Um, so anyway, so we are very excited about season two. We are excited to have Candace here with us as our guest host. That's another thing new we're doing this year is having guest speakers. I think we alluded to that could be a possibility last season. So we're excited to um, do that as well. So we'll have a, a guest speaker from our consulting firm, Modern Mobility Partners, uh, at a minimum every um, episode, if not a guest speaker from the community, uh, if there's there's folks that are interested as well from our industry. So anyway, we're excited. Uh, enough about that. I'm going to go ahead and get started. So again, this episode's about five steps to planning anti-displacement strategies for more equitable transportation systems. So what are we even talking about when we refer to equity and anti-displacement? Uh, so really, equity and inclusion in transportation is actually a very large topic. It encompasses so many different pieces and components. However, we know that transportation has been inequitable in the past. And an example of that is in the United States here. There are many interstates, you know, that were deliberately located when they first were constructed in black, brown and quote unquote blighted areas. And that really assisted with destroying neighborhoods and bisecting communities. Uh, one example here locally in Atlanta is what we call the downtown connector, and that's Interstate 75 and 85. And it goes right through the middle of Atlanta Metro, right through downtown Atlanta. And so it dissects the Auburn Avenue neighborhood and the Old Fourth Ward neighborhoods uh, here in Atlanta. And so that's had a major impact. Yeah, which uh, for those that may not know, Old Fourth Ward neighborhood is where Martin Luther King Jr., grew up. Yeah, good point. Yes. Um so today, you know, transportation plans and you know, we are just to back up real quick for our listeners that may not be heavily involved and nerd out as much as we do in the transportation planning industry. Um we are required federally to do transportation plans in metropolitan uh planning organization areas, so in urban areas of certain popula- certain number of population. And so a lot of times these metropolitan transportation plans and even the smaller transportation plans will recommend projects that are intended to improve safety and reduce congestion, provide different mobility options. And what we mean by that is different ways to get from point A to B. So whether it's biking, walking, taking a bus, you know, car, whatever, um, and just increasing the overall quality of life. But however, like in the past, while it can be argued these projects have many positive impacts or effects for the greater community, these projects can sometimes lead to issues of gentrification and displacement of residents that are often low-income residents. And so it's some unintended consequences that we don't think about enough as transportation planners. And so that's something that, you know, we're trying to do more of and really ingrain in our DNA and in, in all the work that we do. And so as a result, we've done a lot of research and want to share that with you guys. The issue of displacement has really been a longstanding issue within our planning professions, but there are strategies to mitigate these consequences. 
and they're unknown to most. Um, and so we just want to start sharing these with you guys and having the conversation. So, you know, more recently, this pattern has been especially found in urban trail projects. So locally here in Atlanta, we have a very well-known trail project called the Beltline. And the Beltline Eastside Trail, um, you know, the, there, it was a big success as it related to bringing in renewed interest in urban residential areas, commercial retail, and a large number of visitors. It's nationally known, um, has been, you know, a real catalyst in, in the region. However, there are unintended consequences where, you know, the property values increased as well. And that made the rent and property taxes unaffordable to some existing residents and businesses. And it's actually caused them to have to relocate or even close their doors. And so, you know, equity and transportation, while it's not a new topic, it is becoming more central to our general planning practice. You know, in theory, equity should be at the core of everything we do in transportation planning. And that goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about just really integrating it into the DNA of everything we do. Just thread it through the whole transportation planning process. Um, so we're not quite there yet, um, but there has been some new movements to including equity and transportation planning and different analyses. So, for example, the Federal Justice 40 initiative is a commitment from our national administration to deliver at least 40 percent of the overall benefits from federal investments in climate and clean energy to disadvantaged communities. So I have a question. Yes, Kirsten. <laughs> May I ask a question, yes. please? Yes, please. So when when we say disadvantaged communities, what what exactly are we talking about? What groups of people or what what portions of the population are considered disadvantaged? I I, I feel like there's a lot of definitions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm curious with the Biden administration and this Justice 40, Candace, do you do you know what the administration's definition for disadvantaged communities is? Yes. So their definition of disadvantaged communities are communities that have been historically marginalized, underserved, or overburdened by pollution. Um, however, I attended a few meetings for public meetings for Justice 40, and there was some discussion itself about the term disadvantaged, um, mainly because a lot of these communities, and we're talking usually about um, poor, low-income communities, black and brown communities, they're more than just disadvantaged. They have their own advantages inherent, and inherent value. And so um, there is some talk about rethinking about how we talk about disadvantaged communities. Okay. Um, so for our listeners that aren't transportation planners or nerds like ourselves, discretionary grant programs are referring to programs where agencies actually have to compete for funding from the federal government. So there's kind of two different uh, funnels of funding. There's formula funding, which is based off of the census and um, is distributed based on population. And then there's these discretionary grant programs where you have to compete. And one of the components that they're really focusing on um, is equity uh, and climate change. Also, in addition, we see equity as a major component of the IIJA, which is the new Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Wow, mouthful. Um, for many discretionary grant plan- grant programs, like the RAISE grant program, 
um, impacts of climate change, environmental justice, and racial equity must be deliberately considered. So we also see not only the Justice 40 initiative, but within our discretionary grant programs as well. All right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some implications to the public. Um, and Candace is going to touch more upon these, um, but it's the impact on public engagement. So to properly ensure that equity and transportation is meaningful and robust, it's critical that engagement be a part of that process. Uh, the, the public should see planners reaching out to include more groups, not only in the process, but also in the decision making stage. So historically, um, when you do planning projects, uh, you have engagement efforts and you do some outreach. But what we found is like, it's just not enough. We're not getting to the heart of the issues. We're not connecting with everybody within a community. And so we see that as being inequitable. Um, and we need to do more to, uh, to bring those, those groups in. And, you know, we're talking about the potential for displacement and we want to mitigate that. So in order to do that, we really need to ensure that the public is embedded in the process, that there are a number of voices and particularly voices that we don't hear from on a regular basis. And they need to be right at the table alongside planners and community leaders. So what is our role as a transportation planner? And the first thing is that in order to ensure equity, in our practice, we as planners need to do a better job of going into the community, building relationships with community leaders and establishing trust to begin working with, uh, working with those communities and not for those communities. Uh, and by doing this and bringing forth some of the strategies Candace will outline, we can help create more equitable outcomes for transportation planning. Um, in addition to that, Planners have the role of including feedback and insight of the community by incorporating the needs into the planning documents and how we prioritize transportation projects for funding. And we're going to get a little bit more into that in episode two. I'll give you a little teaser there. Um, but these are really important for planners to consider that having the community at the table, a part of the decision-making process, really hearing their input, ensuring that what they're saying is getting into your document and that the engagement piece isn't just checking a box. So drumroll, please. I'm going to turn it over to Candace uh, to start walking through our five steps. So Candace, take it away. All right. So our first step is to research and learn more about anti-displacement strategies to better uh, understand these tools. So I'm about to provide a brief overview of the various anti-displacement strategies, but you guys got to do your own research about what's been done in your region, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what hasn't yet been tried. Um, so there are a lot of different anti-displacement strategies we're about to talk about, but they can be broad broadly categorized as social, economic, or relating to housing. So I'm going to start with the economic ones. These economic strategies include community benefits agreements, which I'll talk about in a bit in more detail. The use of CIDs or community improvement districts, lost their acronyms today. 
Another thing that we can do is think about forgivable loans to businesses to keep them open during construction of a project. Another thing is financial, technical, and marketing support for small businesses, providing job postings and trainings, and providing a living wage for workers on the project. And lastly, youth employment programs. And those are a long list of different various aspects that you guys can do your own research on, like step one. But to go into a little bit more detail about one of them is the Community Benefits Agreement. And a CBA is a tool that can be used to prevent displacement due to the new developments in a community. And CBAs are contracts between developers and community groups in which the developers agree to provide a certain amount of amenities or to mitigate potential harm caused by the new development. Um, Example CBAs could include affordable housing requirements, local hiring for construction, and job training for the residents. Uh, Candace, Kirsten here, uh, question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in, in these CBAs, what's in it for the developer with these agreements? Like in ref, in return for providing these amenities or providing the affordable housing, what do they get in return? Is it tax breaks or credits? So things like tax, tax breaks or credits are usually negotiated in public-private partnership agreements. So those are separate from CBAs. Um, from the CBA, the developer benefits from support, mainly community support. Um, so being able to share information with the community helps to gain support from community members so you don't get any pushback. And with the support comes reduced project risk for the developer and the potential to possibly obtain public subsidies more easily by the city or the municipality that they're working with. And planners can offer CBAs as a potential solution in discussions with communities and as recommendations in the implementation section of the plan document. So you can go out to the communities and talk to communities, or you can also mention it in your plans. Planners can also contact developers active in the area to foster communication conversations about these options and whether local developers and communities can start to talk together and develop a mutually beneficial agreement. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's really like a good faith effort on behalf of the developers with um, the anticipation that there may be benefits for them down the road. I think that's mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, another question, Kirsten here. <laughs> um, so how do we as planners ensure that this process happens? I, I feel like sometimes we get pressed on schedule um, or a client just wants the plan done, they need to get it approved by mm-hmm. a certain date, or they want to get most of the planning done before they have any conversations like this. So any strategies that either of y'all can recommend for making this uh, a part of the process? You know, I have some thoughts on that. I, I definitely think it's a challenge and it's not an easy solution. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, one thought might be for planners to meet early uh, and p- potentially often with their respective zoning departments to discuss some of these ideas. That's that's not something during the transportation planning process that is traditionally done is meeting with the, the zoning departments, but perhaps it should. Um you know, to really kind of discuss some some of these ideas to see if they can get some legs either during the planning process or shortly thereafter, at least start planting those seeds so it's more likely to happen. And, and then by doing that, by meeting with the zoning department, 
you know, they're going to be able to provide some really good input on what may or may not be realistic, maybe some lessons learned, um, and, you know, some of the implementation considerations. And that'll also garner support by them, you know, getting their buy-in and them also having ownership in the recommendations for the cha- any changes in zoning policies or ordinances, and which is going to give it more legs as well, more likelihood to be implemented. So the second category is social anti-displacement strategies. So some of these that you can think about in your plan could be community-oriented crime prevention, city-sponsored community events, uh, creating a co-op model for neighborhood ownership and public art. Um, you can think about protecting legacy small businesses and other cultural assets by using something called a community land trust. And you can start thinking about ways to remove barriers to community participation in the planning process. So not everyone has access to internet. So providing access to computer labs, having a dial-in number is useful for your virtual meetings when you think about community participation. You want to think about removing a lot of these different barriers. And one of these barriers can include language, the time of events, lack of access to transportation, or lack of access to childcare. So these are things to think about before going to the root of the traditional public meeting at 5 o'clock p.m. on a weekday. Um, Truly think about who you're trying to reach and get creative to meet people where they are. For example, I work from home, but I tend to go to the grocery store like many other people after work hours, so around 5 p.m. So maybe that evening rush at the local grocery store is a place for a table to hand out flyers for an upcoming meeting. As a part of your community outreach, you can ask where these types of places are in your communities. Maybe it be a after school event, a uh, grocery store, um, a event space that are specific within the community that can serve as potential project information repositories. So Candace, if I could just interject real here, I actually think that's a really good idea about, you know, setting up outside grocery stores. And I'm trying to think of how often I see that. The only thing I remember seeing outside grocery stores are the Girl Scout cookies. Uh, hello. (laughs) And that's exactly what I thought of. (laughs) And, and, um, but I, I think it's a fantastic idea. In some cases, it may be easier said than done. I don't know if there's some type of, well, I'm certain there's some coordination that would have to take place with the grocery stores, but I think it's a great Mm -hmm. way to go to where the community is. It's so much more convenient for them. Um, and you meet such a broad, um, variety of, mm-hmm. of folks and, and audiences. Okay. Yes, I agree. <laughs> that was it. That was all I had. <laughs> I just wanted to interject that. I thought about Girl Scout cookies and. <laughs> well, I mean, Kelly, if the Girl Scouts can do it, then I think we can do it, right? I know, right? <laughs> Kelly, it does remind me of one of the projects that you worked on a couple of years ago. Um, where as a part of the outreach, you put information about the meeting in food donation boxes. Yeah. And I think that was a really good strategy as well to get to, you know, get to people where they are, you know, with people picking up these food donation boxes. Yeah, we had to, I I need to give a shout out to, um, our, our sub consultant that, that did that planners for environmental quality PEQ Inga Kennedy and that was on the Southern Fulton Comprehensive Transportation Plan and she was our sub on that and um, worked with city council members to make that happen it was at 
it was in 2020 at the kind of at the beginning of COVID. And um, there were food donation boxes going out for those that were really impacted by the pandemic with, you know, their incomes and all of that. And it was um, a big success and it was such a unique and, and effective idea. Yeah. Okay. We'll let you proceed now, Candace. <laughs> and the third and final category that you're part of step one for your research is housing. And one major anti-displacement strategy tool is a community land trust. And a community land trust are used to preserve the affordability of housing, commercial, and retail via a nonprofit community organization. So once the land is acquired um, through an initial public or private investment, the CLT, Community Land Trust, maintains the ownership of the land, but sells homes or retail or office, for example, at affordable prices to low-income residents. So uh, the home buyer will own their home, but the CLT owns the land and imposes measures to ensure that the homes are subsequently sold at affordable prices to low-income residents, thereby maintaining long-term affordable housing, while also allowing homeowners to earn some profits when they sell. So separating the cost of land from the cost of the house decreases the barrier decreases the barrier of entry for home buyers. And uh, one example of this in response to the Atlanta Beltline is the Atlanta Land Trust, which is a community land trust here in Atlanta um, that has started as a response to the Beltline and thinking about affordable housing. And they've uh, started back in, I believe, early or late two thousands, and they're. As of last year, 2021, they have over 250 homes um, that they're using with this community land trust. So in the transportation planning process, um, planners can discuss CLTs as a potential solution to address housing affordability in areas where a high profile project could be anticipated to decrease affordability for low income residents. So your urban trail projects like the Atlanta Beltline and planners should also engage with nonprofits with experience in CLT. So you don't have to do this all by yourself. There are usually a lot of nonprofits that are, are a lot of community um, organizations that know a lot more about community land trusts. And you can go to the community to not only inform residents and businesses, but also to facilitate discussions on implementation strategies, necessary policies, and next steps if the community is interested in pursuing a CLT. So that was a lot. <laughs> So I, I do have a question for you, Candace, and mm -hmm. you may or may not know the answer to this. When did you say the Atlanta Trust Land Trust was started? That is a great question. Hold on. So I guess the reason I'm asking is um, I'm wondering if they did that as a reaction to what started happening along the Beltline with the property values. And, um, you know, just just wondering if like, once you get so far so far down the path of gentrification, are mm -hmm. land trusts um, feasible or does the cost get too high for them to even purchase the land? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm thinking that the Atlanta Land Trust was put in place um, after the Beltline, a portion of the Beltline was, was implemented, which tells me that, you know, even if you start going down the road and you're starting to see those unintended consequences, there's still action that you can take to help reverse some of that and bring some affordability back into the community. 
Yeah. So for my research, uh, it looks like it started um, in January 2007. The thought about um, exploring a community land trust, the Atlanta Beltline Prof Partnership started thinking about um, that as a tool to mitigate economic displacement in advance of the Beltline development. So I'm not really versed in Beltline development timeline, but 2007, I think that was kind of before they started uh, hitting the ground running. Yeah. So it sounds like they were being, um, you know, they were, they were thinking about what, what could come. And, and my guess is they probably saw some of this happening in other parts of the country. Yeah. Kudos, mm-hmm. kudos to them. So, yeah. 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 No kidding. Yeah. That took some foresight. All right. So, Candace, I think you, do you have a little more information about other housing strategies? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, other housing strategies to think about um, is focused a lot on zoning, which we talked about. A lot of planners don't really touch zoning or a lot of planners, transportation planners don't really think about zoning. But some things to think about are inclusionary zoning, something things like accessory dwelling units, so ADUs, so little um, mother-in-law rental properties behind your own property, um, property tax abatement assistant funds. And homestead exemptions, home repair assistance, rental gap assistance, um, urban infill development to provide affordable housing in the urban core. So looking about um, what where your or- urban core is and what housing is available there. Some other things you can think about are banning demolitions or increasing demolition fees and tracking code violations to ensure that residents are not being pressured into selling their homes, especially um, elderly residents. So transportation planners don't typically get too into the weeds about zoning policy. And Kelly kind of talked about that a little bit earlier uh, about working with zoning officials. But it sounds like that might be an area where transportation planners could expand their horizons in um, maybe reviewing zoning policies or some of the jurisdiction's ordinances to understand what is already being considered by that city and perhaps open some doors for um, some opportunities to expand their ordinances and provide these different programs. So how do you how do you get a jurisdiction on board with this idea? You know, I'll chime in here. I think it's definitely a challenge. I think historically, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, transportation and land use planning has often been done separately, but there's definitely been a recognized need to not have them work in a vacuum. And because, you know, it's the chicken and the egg situation, transportation impacts land use and land use impacts transportation. Um, and, and we as planners know that, but sometimes it's easier said than done to, to um, address both of those at, at once. And so, there has been some traction over the past five years on in integrating transportation and land use planning together. So we talked about those required federal metropolitan transportation plans earlier. And some agencies have even gone as far as doing a transportation and land use plan update together. Um, <clears throat> uh, but perhaps at a minimum, you know, certain zoning policies and ordinances could be reviewed early on during the transportation planning update process to see if there's any that contradict what we're doing on the transportation side and vice versa. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And really, if you think about it, this equity that we're talking about and the additional emphasis that's being placed on equity and rightfully so by the national administration or the federal administration, it could really potentially drive um, this need even further for integrating transportation and land use, including zoning, and really be a catalyst for this, um, or at least it should be. And so I think we may be on to something, you know, what is it they say on Back to the Future? Great, Scott! I, I think we're, <laughs> I, I think, I feel like we're on to something here. I don't know, if, Candace, if you know that. You know, okay, so you know Back to the Future. I don't know. I do know okay, Back to the okay. Future. I'm not that young. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. So, so I'm a big Back to the Future nerd, and um, I can, I'm not even going to get started on that. I was looking at stuff earlier that I was like, oh, man, that's, that, anyway, um, but yeah, so I think that we could really be onto something here and it needs to, at a minimum, looking at the zoning ordinances early on during the transportation planning process and figuring out what we can do to make sure that we're supportive of each other's visions. And I say each other, transportation and land use slash zoning mm-hmm. um, and not, you know, contradicting each other. And what can we do to leverage one another? Um, in these two different disciplines yet that are so closely, closely related and really should be done together. Agreed. So step one was doing all that research with the different strategies, economic, social, and housing. Step two is to discuss anti-displacement during conversations, meetings, and various task forces regarding equity and transportation. So, and give examples. For example, here in Georgia, Atlanta, and the, of course, Atlanta Beltline, um, they have taken really important steps to prevent displacement citywide and associated with the Atlanta Beltline project specifically. So we talked about the Atlanta Land Trust, um, but also the Beltline and the city of Atlanta worked together to implement an inclusionary zoning ordinance and which was adopted in 2018 and requires new residential rental developments near the Beltline Trail to include some affordable units or pay an in lieu fee. So there is a little caveat there. Um, but the Atlanta Beltline Inc. and the Atlanta Beltline Partnership also launched a legacy resident retention program to help eligible current homeowners in certain neighborhoods around the Beltline help pay for their property tax increases. And additionally, several nonprofit organizations offer home repairs as part of the city-funded limited home repair program. So partnering with different nonprofits and community organizations is key. And the program offers free and low-cost minor home repairs for senior citizens and people with disabilities who meet certain criteria. And the city of Atlanta has also um, has a homestead tax exemption for low-income homeowner, homeowners. And on uh, in late 2020, voters approved a referendum to extend the exemption to homeowners and community land trusts. So. These and other measures help residents stay in their homes to avoid displacement, especially with these large projects like the Beltline. All right. So that was step two. Step three is to address gentrification, displacement, and potential anti-displacement strategies in your community engagement efforts. So step two was more specific to stakeholders and partners, whereas step three is specific to the general public. And this is key. Robust public engagement should be an overarching part of the equitable transportation planning process. And when trying to address anti-displacement, 
and sincere community engagement is essential to be, begin building trust and fostering relationships with the community. Um, residents and community leaders are experts in their communities. So community engagement efforts should be interactive and continuous throughout the uh, planning process. And engagement should go beyond the public meeting at 5 p.m., go beyond the design charrette, and planners should meet people where they are, like we talked about maybe grocery stores, you know, competing with the Girl Scouts. For example, by tying outreach into existing community events and gathering places, um, rather than relying solely on attendance at public meetings, you can start, you know, begin building that community trust and organization and really robust public engagement. Um, an example in Atlanta or near Atlanta is the Decatur Comprehensive Plan. They did a lot of great community action. They created a community action plan and they did a lot of, um, a lot of outreach with the community. Uh, we did a lot of different, uh, listening sessions and all those types of community outreach are in our show notes that we'll, uh, link to those. And not for nothing, but I just want to mention I am a resident of the city of Decatur. That's it. So they did that plan. Yeah. <laughs> they completed that plan, I think, in around 2015. And this is kind of before we had a lot of talk about equity and transportation. So they are um, they are kind of ahead of the curve. Yeah. And um, I actually saw a presentation on this uh, fairly recently at a conference. I think it was the Georgia Planning Association conference. Um, and they were talking about the strategic plan and their comprehensive plan. Um, and I was just, I was really impressed with their team taking the time to build that trust. And mm-hmm. I remember one of the things that they said is they had to have some really difficult decisions or conversations with the community up front when they started this work. Mm-hmm. They had to really get down into the core of what has made that community what it is. And um, the the sole topic was racism. Mm-hmm. And they said it was it was pretty difficult to have some mm-hmm. of these conversations. But the city of Decatur, you know, they stepped up and they took responsibility for a lot of what had happened in history. And that was the foundation for which they could then start building trust with the community. So mm-hmm. um I, I want to give kudos to the city of Decatur and their um, all of their consultants who helped with those plans. I think they did an excellent job. Yeah, agreed. So more actions planners can take regarding community engagement, thinking outside the box a little bit. So working with schools and universities to engage the younger users of the transportation system. Um, you can reach out to community organizations such as faith, faith-based institutions. Um, other similar groups to identify and build relationships with community leaders. Again, building trust is key. Um, you can also meet with jurisdiction officials to understand the current policies. And when talking about anti-displacement policies surrounding affordable housing, um, meet with nonprofits about initiative to re- reduce displacement and think about what their interest is in programs such as land trust and possibly uh, what they're already doing in regards to land trust. And another thing that we can think about is talk to communities to understand how they receive information and set up um, project information repositories where people can and will access them. So talking about our grocery stores again Um, and 
like Kelly mentioned and Kirsten mentioned, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, um, the Southern Fulton Comprehension Transportation Plan, led by MMP, Modern Mobility Partners, they collaborated with the elected officials and Parks and Recreation Department to distribute flyers about the uh, South Fulton uh, Comprehensive Transportation Plans within food boxes provided to individuals and households affected by the pandemic uh, and to events in 2020. So speaking about uh, events and hosting virtual events, especially with the pandemic, it's important to note that everyone may not have access to reliable internet, computers, or smartphones. So um, an example of a way to mitigate this for the Chattanooga 2050 Regional Transportation Plan um, our client, the regional planning agency, made sure there were library rooms and computer labs um, were provided to ensure that residents without internet could access the virtual meetings and online resources. So, Candace, these, like, all of these are awesome strategies. Um, but one thing I've, I note is that a lot of these take a lot of effort and mm-hmm. a lot of time. And I just feel like one of the shortfalls in planning is... Time and budgets are typically spent more on the technical planning side and the prioritization and, mm-hmm. you know, putting together these reports. And I feel like engagement can sometimes be a checkbox or an afterthought. And I think I was kind of alluding to this a little bit earlier. Of course, like we as an industry should do a better job of working with our project sponsors to make it more of a priority. But when budgets are tight, what do you believe are the top two or three most effective strategies. Yeah. So Kelly, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but from my perspective, I think the relationship building, the meeting with community leaders, identifying the community leaders, um, as well as the jurisdictional officials to get everybody involved and on board are essential. But Kelly, I would love to hear your thoughts because you have more experience on this. Yeah. I mean, I agree with what you said. And I think that a lot of it you know, when you meet with community leaders um, and the jurisdiction, you know, the elected officials and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you're not you don't have to just talk about equity. Right. You're it's threaded throughout. You know, we kind of talked about that mm-hmm. before. It needs to be done anyways to develop a good, effective transportation plan for all users and making sure that we talk about equity as part of that and that it's a big you know, like the backbone of the plan really, um, you know, should be done. But I think that the the meetings and discussions and conversations you're talking about are really going to need to happen regardless. And it's just a matter of being more intentional. The other thing I would say is that there are certain steps of every metropolitan transportation plan that has to be done regardless, you know, developing a vision, your goals and objectives for the plan, evaluating what the existing transportation system looks like. What do you have? What do you not have? And what are the future transportation system needs? And then identifying projects, evaluating those projects for funding, and then developing a funding strategy around them and coming up with the master project list. And Equity can really be addressed throughout every single one of those steps Mm -hmm. Um, as just part of your process, you know, again, ingraining it in your DNA. Um, And so just as you go through each one of those process or excuse me, as you go through each one of those planning steps, 
making sure that you're always thinking about equity. Equity can be used, um, well, incorporated into the vision and the goals and objectives. You know, look at your demographic and communities um, as part of your existing conditions and what the growth is expected in the future. When you're identifying projects, making sure that you're taking into consideration, you know, some of those projects that you didn't realize, but they could actually have unintended consequences, um, like Mm -hmm. we talked about. And then when you're evaluating projects, make sure you consider um, equity when it relates to that as well. Are the projects uh, disproportionately impacting um, those communities or are they improving mobility options and safety for those communities? Uh, and then, you know, when it comes to funding strategies, if you have a good equitable plan, you could be eligible for more funding, you know, back to what Kirsten was talking earlier about discretionary grants at the federal level, your projects may be um, more open or, you know, more eligible for some of these funding pots that would not have otherwise been eligible for. So those are my just off the cuff kind of what I'm thinking. So step four is to include social equity and anti-displacement as part of project prioritization. So there is a great graduate research paper from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign that we'll link in the show notes. And it research, it goes into uh, what other MPOs used as their equity criteria. And in the research paper, they categorize these equity criteria into five different types. Um, But they found the criteria with the most potential equity impact to be something called user-based criteria, which is which considers the number of users of the project that belong to marginalized groups. And it gives more points to projects with more users from these target groups. So we're moving away from just looking at the population surrounding the project and scoring from there and looking into the actual users of the transportation project. And another thing that they mentioned in the paper is that equity criteria is usually weighted very low in the overall scoring, so less than 10% in the overall project prioritization process. Um, thus, the equity criteria has less potential to truly impact project selection. So give equity um, a higher weight <laughs> to actually be more meaningful in the project, pri- project prioritization process um, as your part of your project. I mean, that seems like common sense, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but how, like, how many, how many discussions have you had with stakeholders where you're trying to get a sense of how to weight your evaluation criteria and other, other issues or other categories are always more, more important to them? Safety. Mm-hmm. Mobility options, uh, providing bicycle and pedestrian options, um, cost and return on investment. Like those are the categories that I see are always the most important. So I think it's really important that we this this is common sense that we bring this to light as planners uh, when we're in those stakeholder meetings to discuss why equity should be Mm -hmm. a more important criteria, why it should have more weight to it. Um, And and I think that's going back to the role of the planner. I think that's one thing we can do a better job of. You know, and one other thought is, you know, we were talking about equity as its own category, right? And having 
its own weight. Mm-hmm. So when I say category, so safety could be a category, providing, you know, multiple ways to get from point A to B. So mobility options could be a category. Preserving what we have, you know, resurfacing and bridge projects could be a category. And then, you know, we were talking about equity. But another way, and and when you do that, when you do it that way, and it's not a bad way, that's one way to do it, of course. Um, And it's done often, but you could end up in a lower weight for equity, right? Because it may not be a priority Mm -hmm. for the community. Another way to do it is I think about it as, you know, uh, grinding up peas in a blender and sneaking it to the vegetables to my kids as part of a meal. Not that I do that because I'm not <laughs> mom of the year by any means, but <laughs> but what I'm thinking of is, you know, when you're when we as planners are evaluating, for instance, safety. Safety could be a high priority and and often is and rightfully so. When we're evaluating whether a project is a good safety project, does that project improve safety in areas that are considered, quote, disadvantaged or underserved? Um, Because what we do know is that, you know, Black and brown communities are often disproportionately impacted when it comes to crashes and have much higher crash rates. and so with pedestrians and, and cyclists and everything. And so that's mm-hmm. one example. Um, you know, another example is for the Chattanooga 2050 Regional Transportation Plan that we're leading up. Um, our client had the foresight to develop equity emphasis areas based on different demographics. And then we've been taking those equity emphasis areas and integrating them every chance we can get and the measures that we use to evaluate the effectiveness of different projects in different categories. So, like I said, does a safety project um, positively impact an equity emphasis area? It might get a slightly higher points. Um, mm-hmm. We identified electric vehicle charging opportunity areas, and to develop those, we integrated the equity emphasis areas in there. Um, just several different ways. And so you can thread it in in multiple ways without getting stuck on, well, I can only assign 10%, for example, to that category is integrating equity throughout all the categories as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And then it's just ingrained throughout. So it's my two cents. Good point. Good. Yeah. Great thought. I know that was long winded, wasn't it? Sorry. (laughs) I get that way sometimes. (laughs) All good. And lastly, step five is to recommend relevant and specific anti-displacement strategies in your transportation plan. So consider dedicating a plan section or chapter specifically focused on anti-displacement. I know, put it on paper. Let other people learn from what you guys uh, have researched and try to implement into your own plans so we can just share this information and start to uh, just, you know, disperse it all over the transportation planning realm. Excellent. And that's it. <laughs> well, you did a that was fantastic a... job, Candace. First time. Oh, thank you. First time being a podcast co-host. And I think that you're a natural. <laughs> I agree. Yes. Great job. I agree. Uh, <laughs> so thinking back through the steps, um, I'm trying to decide like which one is my favorite. I love how step five was like, 
just make your plans better. Like just just <laughs> document just put recommendations yeah. in your plans. Yeah. Just document it. <laughs> Short and sweet. Yeah. Document everything that we it. just yeah. talked about so that it is memorialized in, in the plan. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know, the one, I, I think we all agreed that, that we kind of had this aha moment about coordinating more with our zoning planners. Yeah. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. that we need to do a better job of understanding what policies and ordinances are already in place with regards to zoning. Um, but we also need to be working with zoning departments to ensure that whatever we're recommending is in line with those policies or if there are recommendations for new policies or modifications to existing policies. So um, I I really like I really like that point. I, I agree. I think that that was definitely my biggest takeaway from this. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the need to do better an earlier coordination with our land use and zoning partners, particularly our zoning partners early on and have them part of the process. Um, And then just kind of a key takeaway of, you know, just ingrain in the DNA of our planning. It doesn't need to be a separate line item, you know, or part of a checklist. It should just be incorporated into everything we do, you know? So, yeah, I agree. So uh, do you think anyone will take these steps and apply them after listening to this podcast? <laughs> we might have one or two. Well, it dep- maybe if we're lucky, we'll have a handful of listeners and then <laughs> and then maybe one of them will apply it. I know we will. I know that. <laughs> so we've yeah. got our we've got our checklist now of, you know, our five steps, at least to make sure that we are integrating it um, for sure. Um, you know, Candace, we would joke around in season one about, I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast Smartless. I don't know. I love that podcast, but they would joke around about their one listener. And so I always joke around, be like, (laughs) our one listener might, you know, (laughs) so, but anyway, um, you know, I think, I think this has been a great kickoff to season two of our podcast. I'm so happy to be back in the podcast seat. Um, I feel like it was just yesterday since we recorded it. It seemed like forever ago. And now that we're back in the saddle, um, you know, just hit the ground running. We appreciate everyone tuning in. Um, Just a friendly reminder that if you are a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, this episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance credits. Um, so you can find all podcasts eligible for those AICPCN credits on the American Planning Association website at planning.org. Uh, if you want to learn more about how Modern Mobility Partners can help you, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And with that, over and out. Bye. 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 Thanks, y'all. Bye. 
Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.